listeners, welcome to the St. Andrew's CMR podcast. This podcast is in collaboration with students and staff at the University of St. Andrews. At the Center for Minorities Research, we explore the complexities, challenges, and opportunities, continuities and discontinuities, unity and rupture of the everyday lives of minorities in Scotland and beyond. Welcome to another of the CMR, Center for Minorities Research podcasts. This this time it's me, uh, Anushrat Ramakrishnan Agrawal from the Department of Film Studies in the School of Philosophy, Anthropology and Film Studies. And I have the privilege of speaking with Lara Yost from the Department of Philosophy, also from the School of Philosophy, Anthropology and Film Studies. Uh, Lara is, an, is, a, is a good friend but also has been a very key colleague um, within within PAFS, Philosophy, Anthropology, Film Studies, in particularly raising issues of diversity, in raising issues of inclu- inclusivity. She and I have worked together in different inclusive teaching committees within PAFS. We've put together a lecture series and we've put together tutor training for the school and all of which have thankfully for us, been very well appreciated. Today, what we're going to speak about is our use of the academic skills project that SEED offers, the Center for Educational Enhancement and Development offers to all schools within the university. The academic skills project appoints a school coordinator or a department coordinator in schools which want to run workshops specific to the discipline. These workshops are run by PGR students, and are run for undergraduate students, mostly first and second years, to give them skills essential for dealing with the assignments in that particular module. These include ideas of how to cite, how to break down a text, or how to break down a film when you're in film studies, how to write an essay, what are the things that are being expected of you. In all of this, somewhere, the question of diversity or inclusiveness may seem shadowed because you feel like, okay, we're offering key skills on how to do your work as part of a discipline. But as I'm sure Laura would agree, actually part of it is to be aware of issues of diversity. So today I'm going to start by asking Laura, what are the challenges that the discipline of philosophy has when it comes to diversifying the curriculum or diversifying the discipline itself? Yeah, so first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. So for philosophy, what's really interesting about it, and I think that's the core of the challenge, is its history. Philosophy has been widely and historically extremely white, privileged and male. And so basically, every time you try to go outside of that canon, basically Western, highly educated, white, male, people might even say that it's not philosophy anymore. So so our discipline tends to like label itself in a very restrained way. And so every time you try to diversify, the m- biggest challenge, I think, is whether it still is philosophy or not. Th- there's quite a bit of gatekeeping sometimes. And so basically also most of our literature and the things that we, we think we need to teach to our undergrads is basically all of those things coming from this canon. But most of it is just white, rich and male and Western. I think the fact that we teach these things in priority also has an impact then on who stays in the discipline and who creates new body of works. Because when you look, for instance, in the PhD, we have like about 25% of female PhD students. We have like an even lower number of people of color on the PhD. So 
the people that make the discipline are very reflective at the moment of like what our body of work is and what we prioritize in our research. And, and I think that's why it's also hard to diversify, because if you don't have the people that want to do other things, it's it's difficult to diversify. And if we're gatekeeping, it's it's going to be even more complicated. So diversifying in philosophy is a is a very careful game of threading stuff in showing that it is still philosophy. It is important and it helps inform our views and our research while still like making sure that the perspectives are all shot. Just to just to follow up from what you said, that there's an issue of a discipline that's defined itself around what white men have said traditionally. And often when other aspects of philosophy are included, they're, they're taken to be not philosophy. And part of the problem here is also you do not have enough voices of color of, of women who can then come in and say, no, this is the philosophy we practice. Is is there an example or a, or a single example that you could give of of such of some some bit of research not being allowed to be called philosophy and not being called philosophy? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of debate, uh, for instance, around the body of work of Patricia Hill Collins, like a lot of the other black feminist uh, thinkers. And so, for instance, uh, Patricia Hill Collins is at the same time considered to be a philosopher, but also a sociologist. And so for many people from sociology or, or fields outside of like what we call analytical philosophy. So analytical philosophy is this strand of philosophy that came to be in the 20th century that's really centered around like logic, metaphysics and stuff like that. It came, uh, it's mostly the Anglo-Saxon tradition. So and basically within analytic tradition, Patricia L. Collins is not really considered to be a philosopher, but everybody outside of it sees Patricia L. Collins as a philosopher. And what's really interesting, for instance, that her body of work and especially her book Black Feminist Thought, which came out in 2000, she talks about how black women are excluded and how the knowledge is excluded. So it's clearly epistemology. I mean, she talks about knowledge practices and like who knows how knowledge is made. Um, and then many of those ideas, actually, when they were then articulated in a more analytic way by Marinda Fricker, who was a white woman, then that created the whole literature on epistemic injustice. And so what's really interesting is when finally it was a white woman from an analytic department, so Marinda Fricker was in England at the time, when she wrote that book in 2007, like basically uh conceptualizing more clearly what epistemic injustice was, it had massive uptake. But when Patricia Hill Collins was doing it and informing it with this kind of like lived experience thing in her like standpoint as a black feminist and as a black woman, she didn't get any uptake or very little from the analytic tradition. And so for instance, now in our courses in the intro in epistemology, we teach Marinda Fricker and epistemic injustice, but we don't teach Patricia Hill Collins. It's not actually the, that much of a change in content, but as much a change in form, which exactly. allows for the material to be to be accepted within the community. It, it validates what has previously been said from a from a different perspective and in a different manner, but you do not yeah. actually go back to the same texts. That brings me to my next question here, which is. The Academic Skills Project seeks to give students skills to deal with that particular discipline. So clearly it's as much about the form and the, engage, the, the engagement of that form in, in philosophy when you're running academic skills workshops there. 
So how have you run your academic skills workshops to try and manage both this question of diversity and the form of writing, the method of writing, uh, which is at the center of this issue with diversity? Sometimes it's good because we like that in analytic philosophy to have the form of like premises conclusion. And like, for instance, all the definitions need to be given because these are the core things of like features of analytic philosophy. So it's like you can really use Patricia Hill Collins, but you'll need to present her ideas in a way where you define the terms, you explain like what's her argument and things like that to make sure that you don't get marked down by your tutor <laughs> who's going to mark your essays. And also making sure that the students understand the marking criteria, because that's the biggest step, I think, because many students want to bring in other ideas or things they've seen or even literature, like things from like English literature or like foreign literatures. And and it's interesting. And many philosophers do that. But you need to do it in the way that's approved in some way. So we're basically teaching the students. And I mean, in some sense, it's it's a bit sad <laughs> to be teaching the students how they need to conform to the majority standard. But at the same time, if we don't do that, then we're going to lose them because then they're going to get bad grades. So we basically teach them how to understand the system and how to cheat the system. <laughs> so, so that would be within those hard skills. But at the same time, there's also about diversifying our discipline. It's not only about like what text we engage with, but it is also who is engaging. And I think for me, the most important thing when I was thinking about my academic skills workshops, I was thinking about the fact that many of those students are going to be first years. The first year's cohort are just so wild from like the backgrounds. Like it goes from all over the place. You have people who've done some philosophy, some people who've never done any philosophy. You've got people who come from like working class backgrounds. You have people that went to like super posh schools. You really have massive differences between those students and also whether their parents went to uni or whether they were first gen students. And so for me, I also thought of my workshops in a way that would level the field because because I know that like it's important that not only do we tell them techniques on how to read efficiently to be able to prep for their first tutorial, but like also what is a tutorial even about? Because some students don't even know. <laughs> I had Enrico, who's like a first gen, um, he's also first gen, and he's now in the, doing his PhD. And he understands the struggle when you like go to uni and you have no clue how anything is working because you cannot even ask a member of your family. And so we created that workshop with Enrico so that students could really learn that no, office hours, it's not when your tutor is working, it's when they're supposed to be seeing you. And like and encourage the students to be like, no, 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 you should go to your tutor and go to the office hours. It's for you. It's important. And like also tell students that like it's OK to send an email and also that there's no stupid questions or things like that, just to give them the chances. Because so many of those first gen students or working class students, they just don't engage sometimes with the tutors as much. And so then the grades and the marks will suffer from that. Because if people who know the system are always the one playing the system and the others just don't know the rules of the system, they're lost. So my workshops were also about leveling the field by giving the rules of the game, <laughs> the, those implicit rules of the game of academia to the students who didn't have them. Your workshops give, as you think, in terms of leveling the field, they tell people this is what office hours are. This is what you do in a tutorial. Information available to everybody. I, I, for example, you know, remember my parents and this was in India, my parents mentioning what a tutorial was 
but the fact that I yeah. just had parents using that term and then I eventually when I went to university I could figure it out it, it opens up that space in a way that for many others who, who may not have that background so I completely understand that I'm also really really curious about your workshops are geared towards explaining to students how do you find the argument in these texts which are not traditionally considered philosophy to say okay I know you describe it as sort of some sort of a cheat code uh, and a sad state of affairs where that has to be done but the idea that your workshops actually are teaching form but are teaching form using texts which are not traditionally meant to be teaching that form so you know using Patricia Hill Collins and saying okay see use her but you'll be able to show this is the argument that actually allows for these texts to come in and you so you, you train students in building the skill to, to to break down information for any text not just for texts that are traditionally considered as uh, worth breaking down information so we didn't do that as much this year in the how to write an essay but last year when Darren Thomas was the uh, academy school coordinator I actually was a workshop leader for that workshop about how to use texts from like diverse resources um, and then implement them. But this year also one of the things we've done, because like when you're always in this little bubble, it's really hard to find the text. So when Petronella Rendell, one of my workshop leaders this year, was making her workshop on like how to use databases, I was like, Petronella, I really want you to also tell them about the diversity reading list, because many students would love to include stuff coming from diverse perspectives, but they just don't know where to find them. So for that, the diversity reading list is like, uh, it's a resource for philosophy mostly about text on like different like themes that are either related to minority groups or are written by authors from minority groups. Um, so that's a really amazing resource. And I and I made sure that my leaders <laughs> were like pinpointing to that and also in the little things about community, because I think it's really important to highlight to members of m marginalized groups within our discipline that there are others like them so i've had many of my workshop leaders put a link to map so map is minorities in philosophy as a place where they could actually get help if needed to be or like to get community it's great that now those diversity reading lists are being included and you're kind of sh you, your workshops are also showing this repeatedly to see that okay you need to mention that this reading list is available but the fact itself that that there are these spaces available, that there are these alternative forms of reading available. What do you think is the relationship between the workshops and the curriculum being taught here? Because what one thing you can include these things in your workshops, but if the lectures and the re regular tutorial spaces are still focusing on very specific texts, how do how do the workshops try and add this bit of information without becoming sort of another source of another lecture in itself workshops should not become lectures but you also need them to be because there are gaps to to be filled yeah that's a good question i'm not sure how much of an impact this has had as you've said in the introduction you and i have worked on many different projects together and i don't i feel like many people see the asp as something just separate because it's whole it's held like it's organized by seed and hosted by seed so i don't i've not seen that my workshops have had an impact. But the one way I've seen it had impact is that I've seen that some of my students were much more empowered and so then felt way more open about giving feedback. And so they were more open also to ask questions and stuff about things that bothered them. Because for instance, when you take a little first year 
who suddenly having this lecture on Kant and is like, why is nobody telling me that Kant is racist and sexist? They were more likely now if they feel empowered about asking questions instead of saying silent, they're more likely to ask it during the lecture when the, the lecturer is asking like, hey, does anybody have a question? So in some sense, it's not directly the workshops themselves or me as like a school coordinator was making the lecturers change or like is asking stuff, but it's the ripple effect from the students feeling empowered or having more agency and control over the studies and the impact they can have on their studies that I think has an has an impact. That story makes me very happy. Having the space to discuss these things may have an impact in ways that you cannot you cannot actually control or imagine. And that's a good thing that, yes, maybe the workshops themselves are not changing the curriculum. Maybe they're having to only do so much because the curriculum is set. But the fact that even one student says, OK, I want to ask this to the lecturer. Why have you not included this? It allows for the lecturer getting more direct feedback from the students. Yeah. And in that sense, workshops are successful because they're learning how to negotiate a discipline. Um, yeah. <laughs> so my approach has been slight in running academic skills workshops for film studies has been slightly different from yours, which is there have been a series of regular workshops on, on explaining how film studies works, how to cite sources, what are academic sources, how to write an essay, and often examples used here are of films and readings by in more of, of, of a variety of authors. It also isn't film studies biggest problem um, or in the in the course, it's not its biggest problem that there are not enough films which are not Eurocentric or American. There are efforts by the lecturers to include a fairly diverse range of films, give options, and even the readings somewhat reflect this. Sometimes students are taken aback by watching a film from a different part of the world, but that's a different story. My main method to do this was, and it depended on funding, was to essentially hold a series of workshops called Decolonizing Film, where actually PhD students came and spoke about their research and how it dealt with questions of diversity and inclusiveness. But one, as you remember with, with Darren as well, that it was a question of getting funding so that these workshops could be run. You did exhaust your existing budget in running more traditional workshops. Uh, but again, I'm not sure what's been the impact of it yet, because it's been a bunch of PhD students speaking with each other, the odd fourth year or third year or master's student joining in. <laughs> and perhaps this is not like the discourse kind of remains within people who already want to have that discourse. I don't yet know the ripple effects from my attempts to work with the academic skills project there. Let's kind of think here also about this, the structure of how things run. Currently, the structure of things is the school runs lectures and tutorials, and then seed appoints a coordinator in the school to run academic skills workshops to help students engage with that le those lectures and tutorials. Do you think potentially there's a different relationship that can be formed here between the workshops and the lectures that might actually be more inclusive, inclusivity friendly? That That's a hard question. We want lecturers to have academic freedom. <laughs> so we want them to be able to do the lectures the way they, they want to do them. But I think maybe one thing that could be done, and maybe this is a wild idea, <laughs> but at the moment, most of the workshops, most of the trainings were done were like targeted towards students. All the academic skills project workshops are like, we've wrote those in like inclusive teaching guidelines. 
And the biggest thing that we said in those guidelines was you need to kind of know your students and you need to empower them. It's a thing that we did with like uh, Caterina Pello and Ravi Takra, like through the EDA committee of the PATH school. And so it's why I feel like sometimes it might be good to just have once a year or maybe like twice a year, one hour workshop where like we get the staff to just rethink. And like, because I think in in many, many like education settings, there is this thing called like continuous training. Like you get you get training, you you get trained more like in any job, like usually even if you're already a manager, like there's sometimes trainings for managers like your CEO, you might take some other trainings. I feel like here, besides some staff members taking those bullying trainings or like mental health kits, trainings and stuff, there's not as much trainings for them once they're teaching about teaching itself. So I think maybe having teaching trainings that are created based on the feedback of students directly and also on the feedback of tutors who are kind of making this bridge between permanent staff members and the, the, the students like the taught students maybe that would be something to explore that brings me to actually my last question here that yes it's it's a very important thing to have teacher training i do believe like in various ways it is done like i think osds which was formerly part of SEED when SEED was capered. Don't want to throw too many acronyms there. Uh, but the does have have te- teacher training for or like staff training options and staff training courses. But this actually brings me, as I said, to my last question, which is that it's it's not just a question of telling teachers, okay, yes, listen to everybody, listen to be inclusive, be aware of experiences. Because part of what the gap here, according to me, is that there are the, these things which I call administrative aspects of bringing about inclusiveness, yeah. which I and I agree these these are important. The correct use of pronouns, giving everybody an opportunity to bring forward their form of knowledge. But the gap for me often seems to be that okay, that's all of that's happening. But as scholars, we're often in a position to say yes. But as far as the discipline goes, I know what I'm doing. I have to teach this because I understand this discipline. Do you think there are potential ways in which either the teacher training or any other kind of training can actually bridge that gap? Can say, okay, what are the ways to make teachers think more about their discipline and the boundaries of their discipline? Yeah, so I think I think we need to make sure that people understand as the first step that this is not just a surface issue. Like inclusive teaching is not, as you said, it's not just this decorative artifices on top that are important. But like it's the cool things like I think we need people to understand that like the way we teach our students is going to influence who are the teachers of tomorrow. Because that's the thing, because like depending on how we teach our first years or like our second years, then that will decide whether they stay in honours or not. Then depending on what we do in honours, it will decide whether they stay in the MLET. And then if suddenly they continue in academia, the way they've been taught is actually probably going to reflect in how they're going to teach the future generations. And and I think like teachers understand that like, oh, yeah, they have an influence on the students. They don't understand as much that they have an influence on who's not in the room anymore. Because that's the thing we always think about our students about who's staying. We don't ask ourselves as much about why the other ones are leaving. Yeah, I think very much. And also <laughs> what we're doing is constituting what is knowledge. And if potentially the reason why students might be leaving or are set in their ways in the future is because we tell them maybe a range of other things 
are not knowledge, but what's not happening is the legitimate inclusion of a range of different ways of thinking, which I suppose, certainly for a discipline like philosophy, uh, if it's been traditionally defined by white men, is needed. It is. There's a report that just came out by the diversity reading list where they looked at the module offers from the 10 highest ranked institutions according to the Times Higher Education Ranking. Out of all the modules that focused on like a specific philosophical figure or like a specific philosophical figure's ideas, it was only white males. <laughs> so, uh, wow. Also, like the ratio of modules that had some like diverse elements is really low. Uh, that that report was actually quite daunting when you read it. And this is even just talking about like having women in the thing. It's not even really about even having people of color, like because that's even worse. Uh, it's just it's just it's it's gloomy. But the thing is. And I think this is how the discipline maintains itself at this like as this like little fishbowl that seems happy with always the same things, because we're selecting the fishes that we have in the fishbowl from the way they from when they when they start the undergrads. And I think this is this is just the main problem because if you don't have different people to regenerate the discipline and bring new and different ideas, it's always going to stay the same. And also we're driving people out. When you say we're driving people out, this is very much in the way of people are not able to grasp the discipline in, in, in these traditional structures and forms. Yeah, or they have different ideas and then they write their essays on a certain things or like they want, they want to write about something and it's like, no, but that's not really philosophy. You should modify it. Like you need to really include these things. And it's like, no, but it's a different perspective. And for instance, like even on a higher level, when you try to publish something and then the reviewers are like, oh, but you don't engage with the relevant literature. How do you make space? What is new perspectives when everything is so tied to the past? I suppose that's where like teaching people how to take any reading and break it down in these particular terms helps because you at least exactly. get those readings in. I think there are further <laughs> questions to ask here, but this is this has been certainly very educational for me. The thing I work on, like it's like resistant epistemology. I'm trying to give give that to the students. You need a community to be able to resist the system. If you don't have that community, you're powerless. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you for having me. <laughs> not at all. Fingers crossed and that community is growing. Again, thank you so much, Lara. And uh, yeah, thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of the CMR podcast. For more information, visit the St. Andrews CMR website, Facebook or Twitter. See you next time. Bye.